0: Where are we? In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is building a case. Here's the case that he's building. He's building a case that Jesus is a king. And not just a king, Matthew's building a case that Jesus is the king. That's why in the Gospel of Matthew, you may see certain events grouped together, and maybe they're not in the chronological order you saw in another Gospel. That's because Matthew's trying to make the point of, I'm here to group some events together so you'll get the theme. And the theme is that Jesus is the king over everything. And it's one thing like, you know, as Matthew is going through it, he's like, well, he's a king because he has kingly lineage. And Matthew starts out talking about the family line of Jesus. He comes from a kingly line, the line of David. It, it's pretty awesome. And then he says, you know, Jesus has authority because he has a kingly line. But it's one thing if you have a kingly line and you have kingly authority but it doesn't mean anything if you don't have power. And so now what Matthew's been doing in Matthew chapter eight and Matthew chapter nine is he's going to show us that Jesus is a king that has power. He doesn't just have the authority to do things. He has the power to make it happen. And how is he able to do this? Miracles, miracles in secret, miracles in public. And so that's what we're seeing. Miracle after miracle. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus heal a leper, touch him, Last week we saw Jesus healed the servant of a centurion, a Roman centurion, and Jesus didn't even go see the person who was sick. It was like a longer distance, you know, uh, uh healing that Jesus did. And now Jesus continues with the healings that are happening. All of this is happening in a town called Capernaum, and this town, um, it's a very interesting town. We'll actually see some pictures in a moment here, but the town of Capernaum, they like to be known as, um, Jesus's hometown. Now you may scratch your head a little bit if you've read the Bible and you're kind of going, hold on. If I read it right, Jesus didn't have a home. He had no place to lay his head. It's not like he had like, you know, Jesus's home because here's why people have an amazing capacity to idolize locations, to go this was the very spot where the thing happened. And all of a sudden, like people are worshiping the spot, meanwhile, forgetting what happened and who it was that was there. And so I'm very thankful that we have very few um, physical artifacts of Jesus, if you will. Because here's the thing. Don't ever underestimate human nature to idolize anything. Could you imagine if they're like, this is Jesus's house? Could you imagine what it would look like today and what like a, here's a ticket to come see Jesus's house. You want the express line? It'll cost you 20, you know, 20% more kind of a thing. And like, you know, you got somebody out there with pendants. They're like, Jesus is, I'm Jesus's number one fan. And it's like, no, that's like, again, let's not um, underestimate a person's capacity, humanity's capacity to idolize anything. And I think what a loss it would be if we would idolize where Jesus was and forget who Jesus is. I think it's really beautiful, too, why we don't have a description of what Jesus looked like. I think it's so awesome. Why? Because then you would look at other people and be like, that person looks a lot more like Jesus. That's not the point. The point is Jesus is real and the things he did. And so that's why maybe when you look at the Gospels, like, I wish they said more. They say exactly what they needed to say to get what the point and the messages that needed to, be, uh, needed to get across. So it's Capernaum. Why is Jesus there? And why do the people of Capernaum think it's his hometown? Because after he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus did stay places. It wasn't like he was sleeping out on the hillside his whole life. He did stay with people who opened up their home for Jesus. And how awesome is that? Jesus is staying at my house. He kind of has a room off to the side here. And, you know, Jesus crashes on my sofa. Not that they had sofas, but you get that idea. Like, wow, wow. And you know, one of the places that Jesus crashed was Peter's home, Simon Peter. And the thought is that the centurion, he was also stationed there in Capernaum and his servant who was sick was nearby in one of the houses nearby Capernaum. How many people lived in Capernaum in this town that we're going to be reading about here? A uh, thousand to 1500 people during the time of Jesus. So not a huge town, but you know, there was a few people that were there for sure. And so the people in the town of Capernaum, they get a front row seat to watch the king show his power. And that's what we're going to get to see today. So the title of this morning's message is The King Who Heals. We'll be in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. Let's pray and we'll get right into it. Father, thank you so much that you don't give us more than we can handle or give us more information that might distract us. You pare it down to the essentials that we can look at and we can consider, and that we can get the point. And I thank you that this morning, in a few verses, you're saying something that you don't want us to miss. Father, I thank you that you demonstrated power through your Son, that He is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Help us this day as we look at the Word to understand how amazing the king is and how he can heal. And I pray, Lord, if we are suffering in some way, a physical ailment or something else, I pray that we would be attuned to listen to how the king could even heal us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 All right, well, let's take a verse here. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. Centurion's servant has been healed, verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Okay. You've seen this before on Sunday mornings as we're looking at a gospel story here. We like to look at other gospels to see if there's a parallel account from one of the other gospel writers. And especially when a healing is about to be done, the gospel I really love to look at to see if there's any more insight. I like to look at Dr. Luke's gospel. Because the doctor is going to write things down with maybe a little different detail because it's a medical thing and he maybe give us a little bit more insight. So it's great. On the screen, you'll see it. Luke chapter four, verse 38. Luke writes this from his doctor's perspective about what's happening in Peter's home. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him, the people in the house, on her behalf. So people on... The behalf of Simon Peter's mother-in-law said, hey, Jesus, she's really not doing well. And and what was the issue here? The doctor says she had a high fever, obviously high enough to warrant a lot of concern, a fever that might have put her close to death. And so, okay, thank you, Dr. Luke. A little insight there on what was going on. But in one verse, there's something that we we see, and I'm guilty of this. Read it and I just keep going. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm trying to get the story right. I'm just trying to read it. And maybe you are frustrated at a pastor who stops and it's like, and Jesus entered Peter's house. Let's talk about the word and. Oh no, he's doing that thing again. He's going to break down every word. No, not going to do that. But, but there is a value to slow down and to, go, to notice things that you may have just thought, oh, that's just window dressing. It doesn't really matter. Everything in God's scriptures matter. So think about this. The thought that somebody, maybe you've heard this, they'll say, listen, if you want to really follow Jesus, you got to do it a certain way. And here's how you need to do it. You need to deny yourself. And I would go, I agree with that. The Bible actually says, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me. So I get it. But they may go, no, no. What we mean by deny yourself is you need to take a vow. If you really want to serve God the right way, you got to take a vow of poverty if you really want to do it. Or, and, take a vow of celibacy. Not going to get married. That's not going to happen. And I'm not saying that a person can't choose to of their own free will go. No, I feel that I am called by God to take a vow of poverty or take a vow of celibacy so that I could serve the Lord. That's different. What I'm saying is there are some that will tell you or give the strong impression that unless you do take a vow of poverty or unless you do take a vow of celibacy, you can't really serve God. Now, I spent many years in... Catholic school. In fact, four years of Catholic high school, slacks, war tie, the whole thing. Like, I mean, like I'm no stranger to Catholicism, even though our family wasn't Catholic, but some of our Catholic friends may have been taught that way. That if you really want to serve God, you got to take a vow of celibacy or a vow of poverty. But I think it's very interesting as we looked at just this one verse here, the person that they would consider their first um, Pope, he had a wife. Let's read Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. We just read it. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law. I don't know what you think about when you think about the disciples. I don't know if you think about a bunch of guys that are like, Jesus! And there's a bunch of guys, like a guy's club that kind of goes like, hey! You know? Peter had a wife. Peter had a wife. It's right there. His mother-in-law. You don't have a mother-in-law unless you have a wife. So... Maybe this changes the way you think about Peter. Maybe you think like, oh, Peter, he's just that guy. And he's just like, you know, I, I just go, God bless Peter's wife. <laughs> right? Because she's married to Peter. You know, Mr. Ready, Fire, Aim, right? That's who she's married to. And I just wonder like what kind of a person. Now, it just makes you wonder like what kind of a woman was she? And it's like Peter, Peter. All right, honey. And maybe you've never thought of it that way, where Peter's wife saved his bacon multiple times as wives do. God bless our wives, how they save us from, oh boy, us falling into our own holes that we've dug, right? I wonder how many times Peter's wife did that. And again, there's nothing in the scriptures about that. And so because it's not there, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that isn't the focus of what the Bible's about. But please, let's not look at these people in a vacuum. Peter had a wife. And so he had a mother-in-law. And you know what that shows me is that, wow, you don't have to turn away from your family and be like, you know what, I'm sorry, I, I just learned about Jesus and I know we're married, but if I want to really follow Jesus, we're going to have to, I'm going to, have to I am I, I need to go out on the mission field or I need to go to a far off land. And your spouse is like, well, I don't really, I what? Well, listen, if you don't come with me, I'm following Jesus. So I'm headed off. I think that person has missed the whole point because the Bible does not teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches that your first ministry is to your family. My first ministry is not to you or this church. My first ministry is to my family. If I fail at that, what does this matter? And so if you're a Christian and you come to know the Lord, you're not called to forsake your family and you walk away from them. You're called to minister to them in a way that you never even thought about before. So when you're in your home, you go, this is my primary mission field. This is my mission field if they don't know the Lord and ministry field if they do. You just go, I'm ministry here and I'm just going to serve the people in my ministry. What ministry is that? Your home. That's your first ministry. And I love here how Peter has his mother-in-law right there in the house with him. Which is not to say there's times you don't sometimes wish you could just abandon your family. Oh, good. I'm a Christian and they're not. Therefore now I can. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Here's the thing. If they, after hearing about your love of the Lord, your relationship with Jesus, you becoming a Christian, if they say, oh, we're separating ourselves from you, there's nothing you can do about that, but you keep your door open to them. And Jesus in fact tells us that sometimes when you come to know the Lord, your family will respond in a way where they walk away from you, but nowhere in the scripture are you called to walk away from your family. So here we are, you know, 2018, and it would just be wonderful if we could, you know, at least have some idea where Peter's house is. Well, we know where C- Capernaum is, and we know right where it is in Israel there. And in fact, there's an aerial shot of where Capernaum is. We saw a picture of the synagogue. Let's look at that aerial photo. There we go. So this is the city of Capernaum. There's the Sea of Galilee, which is a large lake. And this wall wouldn't have existed back in the time. Um, but the city of Capernaum, it's, it's made up of these kind of buildings right here. And the synagogue, this is the one, the centurion that we talked about last Sunday helped fund to build. And so there's the synagogue and Jesus taught in that synagogue. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's inspiring, but we don't worship the place. We just, we just realize that, that something happened there. And so in this area and then further out in all directions out here would have been other houses, I don't know if if you're like me, but, you know, you see these kind of things where you realize these are small houses, they're not very big, but I've seen places, I've gone to places where they go, this is a historic site, right? And you show up at a historic site and you're like, the walls are like this tall and it looks like a floor plan. And I'm just like, kind of hard to get inspired when I'm looking at these like broken down walls, right? And I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I definitely have felt that way. And I kind of thought, why do people get excited about like something that most people would just go look past? It's not a big deal. These houses, they were built um, with rock and the rock, there was no mortar put in between them. They were just fitted that way. There's all fitted that way. And there'd be like an inner room and an outer room. And then they would put these wood beams, nothing elaborate, but just wood across the top. And then they would take like thatched vegetation and put it on top of those beams. And then they would put mud and put mud on top of that. And the mud would harden. And that was their roof. That's why, generally speaking, you don't see roofs that serve roofs, roofs. Yeah. Roofs, roofs. You don't see roofs. It sounds wrong to me. Anyway, you don't see them surviving into our modern age because they're not made out of materials that would survive hundreds and hundreds of years. So therefore you end up with these sites that have no roof, which always bothered me. And then looters and people and all of that come by and then bricks start, you know, get pushed aside, moved, used on other projects. And so areas get dismantled. This synagogue was, you know, these bricks were broken down. The columns were in pieces and broken down. And as archaeologists have come, they've rebuilt and restored um, what they believe using the pieces that were available at the site, put together as much of the synagogue as they could. Okay. So this is Capernaum. This is the place where Jesus was in Peter's home. And it would be really awesome to have some idea of where, you know, Peter's house would be. Now, keep this in mind. Remember I said, don't ever underestimate people's ability to idolize anything. Yeah. I wonder where Peter's house would be. When I, w- when I was here in 2000, my senior pastor, Pastor Al, said to me, oh, Jim, when we go to Capernaum, you're going to know right where Peter's house is because it looks like a spaceship landed on his house.
1: <laughs>
0: Underneath there is Peter's house. That is St. Peter's Church, an octagonal, Building, eight sided, looks like, I mean, it doesn't even fit with anything going on outside. And it, it, you go in, and the floor of it in the center, which is supposed to be positioned directly over the house of Peter, is glass. So you can look down and see the floor that was, and people go to St. Peter's church. Listen, Jesus isn't there, He was there but we don't worship a place. And I just want to say, man, that's just horrible how that happens. But w- look, if we look at ourselves, we can all do that. We can all do that. We can look at like, uh, God did something in my life way back when, and then we just go back to that place and we remember it. But the problem is we don't just remember God having done something there. We want to go back and live there. We want to go back to that. I remember when I was in camp, I came here at camp as a high schooler and God changed my life. Okay, that was 30 years ago. What's God doing today? I don't want to talk about that. I want to go back. What is he doing now? And so while I see that, I just go, that's quite a visual image to me. I can be guilty of it too at times. And I have to be very careful not to idolize things and to forget God. I need to, he needs to be the focus of all things. Okay. Okay. One verse. Awesome. Verse 15. <laughs> um, here's what happens with Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. T- Jesus is not afraid to touch people. It doesn't matter if you're a leper and your skin's falling off and you have sores and you. he doesn't care. He's going to come and he's going to touch you. Jesus is not afraid to do that. And here. He touches her hand. The fever leaves her. And I love this. The first thing she does after standing up, the first thing she does, verse 15, she starts serving. And I think Peter's mother-in-law got it. See, if you have a grateful heart, you're just going, I'm so thankful that you healed me. What can I do for you? And I, I look at it and I'm inspired by what she did. And I have to remember and remind myself, listen, if God has done anything in my life, it's not just for me. It's for me to tell other people about how great he is. I can't keep it to myself. How can I keep it to myself? And so as I see this inspiration and of what Peter's mother-in-law did, it encourages me. I want to be like that too. Sometimes you hear this thought, well, you know, if you're a Christian, you know, you, I mean, it's good if you serve. (laughs) Let me take that to another level here. A Christian should serve. And this is the thing to be very clear about. Most Christian service does not happen within the walls of a church building. Most Christian service happens outside the walls of a church building. And so the question then is, how are you, if you're a Christian, how are you serving? I'm not asking you about a ministry here in the church. That's what I'm asking you about. There's a ministry outside of the church. How are you serving out there? We live in a community that so needs to be served with the love of Jesus and Christians are not optionally called to serve they are called to serve so we look at where peter is and he's in that town of capernaum but if if you you know you kind of look at some of the gospels here and you kind of go wait a second wait a second when peter was when jesus met peter he was fishing and he was fishing in bethsaida so where Jesus found him was Bethsaida, but now we find out that Peter's house is in Capernaum? That doesn't make any sense. You look on a map, it's about six miles away. And it's like, oh, that's an inconsistency in the Bible. No, it's not an inconsistency in the Bible. Here's what happened. Peter's life was radically changed by Jesus, and Peter said, I'm going to follow you. And not like in a, in a, um, theoretical or in a, um, uh, you know, symbolic way. I'm actually going to follow you. And so Jesus says, well, there's ministry to be done in Capernaum. And guess what Peter says? I'm moving, not just me, see you wife, see you mother-in-law. Guys, we're all moving and we're going to go live in Capernaum. I look at that and I just go, wow, because Peter had a business. He was working, he was a working man. And so the fishing business was going well in Bethsaida and he chose, listen very carefully, he chose to put his profession and his income on the back seat. He knew God would take care of it, but he didn't let his profession and the finances he received make all his decisions, which brings this point up. How do you determine where you will live? How do you determine what your next major life decision is? Is it, well, you know, if it's a job, it's like, well, Oh, two jobs. First question, how much do they pay? I don't think that should be the first question. I don't think that should be the first question because we betray what is most important to us by how we make our decisions. If on decisions of where will I work and your first thing is how much do they pay and you're going the one that pays more is automatically the one that I'm choosing, then what are you following? Just logically think it through. I think for the Christian, the first thing should go, God, first of all, where do you want me to work? And don't be surprised when God brings up options and you're like, oh, I wouldn't have picked that (laughs) because in God's economy, it's not about money. That's not the primary driving force. Peter here could have just stayed in Bethsaida and been like, I got a fishing business. We're good. Like I got a job. I got a job. You've got to. And here it is. Like, let's use these well-worn phrases because I've, you know, I've heard them and used them myself. Got to feed the family right? Got to make a living. No kidding. Wow. Like God doesn't know that. Like God doesn't know that. Of course you need to provide. You would be irresponsible if you didn't provide for your family. That's a given. Put that aside. How are you making your decisions? For Peter, he said, honey, mother-in-law and anyone else that is not named in the story that's also part of the family, come. We're moving to Capernaum. What about the fishing business? What about this? We're following Jesus. God will take care of our needs. That's why Capernaum is the home of Peter. That's why he was there. And that's why he had a home there. I would encourage you to make your decisions based on what God would want you to do. Well, doesn't God sometimes use money? Sometimes. But you know what? I know somebody else that uses money to lead people. And he's a person that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Here you go. Here you go. Oh yeah, here's a dollar. Follow it. Wow, you're so good at following the money. Follow it. And you, there's people, come on, you've lived long enough to know people have followed the money to places that have damaged and hurt them and maybe even generations to come. I'll give you an Old Testament story of a person who had a choice, had a decision he could make that would affect him and generations to come. And he made the decision based on, well, the money of their day and age, the currency of their day and age, which was Property. What do you mean? Look on the screen. Genesis 13, two people in the story of focus, Abraham, Abram at this point, Abram is his name. He's an uncle and lot is the nephew. They owned lots of cattle, lots of livestock and their herdsmen were having issues with each other. And they were basically on top of each other and they were running into each other in arguments and, you know, family being a bit too close. So they needed some space here. You guys know what I'm talking about. Here we go. Uh, verse eight, uh, Genesis 13, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen for we are kinsmen. We're family. We shouldn't be fighting. Here's a solution. Verse nine is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. Put some space in here. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. It's pretty awesome here because the uncle, the more senior says to the nephew, listen, nephew love you. You get first pick. You pick whatever you want. Whichever way you go, I'll take my cattle and herdsmen and everything and we'll go in the opposite direction. That way there's there's plenty of room for all of us here. Okay, great. So Lot is now left with making a decision, an important decision that will last for generations, could last for generations. I wonder how Lot is going to make his life decision. We actually have it in scripture, verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden. Uh, and like the land of Egypt, which tells us Egypt looked a little different back then than it does today in the direction of Zoar. Okay. Why, how did Lot make this decision? Did he consult with the Lord? Did he seek God's wisdom? Did he say, God, what is your will for me and my family? Nope. He lifted his eyes and he went with what he saw. How many times have you and I made decisions based on what we just saw? And it led us to a place that was painful for lot. And you see the rest of the verse here. That was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, the grass was green, literally in that direction. And lot just said, I know Sodom and Gomorrah over in that direction there, but man, the grass looks good. The currency of the day and age looked really good. A lot of, lot of green over here. And so he moved in the direction of the green. And if you know the story God called judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And think of all that Lot lost. Think of his wife, daughters, his, his future. Don't let money make the decisions for you. Now, I said that the wrong way. Don't you let money be the way that you make your decisions. Money's not making any decisions. You're making decisions. Don't ever let responsibility go to anything other than what you are choosing. And I'm so thankful that Peter said, Family, let's literally follow Jesus. He's over in Capernaum. Let's make that our home, because we want to be near him. I think about um I think about my wife and uh before we moved here, will you can you believe it? We've been here for seven and a half years. Like we kinda I kinda like do the math. and it's only when we look at our youngest son, when we first came, he was a year and a half old, just a little guy on the stage, or there was no stage even. He was just kind of walking around. And now he's a lot bigger. And I think about it, seven and a half years have gone by since we came here. And I remembered that I remember that the moment where I looked over at Dawn and I said, "Hey, so what do you think about California?" And I knew how she felt about California. Like, I'm not moving to California. I knew that that's how she had felt. Like it's not some we would talk about it and be like, "California, can you imagine moving there?" and we'd look at each other and be like, <laughs> <laughs> "Right?" Yeah. God's got a sense of humor. I tell you what. Uh and so I looked over at my wife And I said, honey, there's an opportunity that's opened up. And I think it's the Lord, you know, kind of thing. And I said, what do you think about us moving to California? And here's the thing. Team Thomas had to be on the same page because I wasn't going to have my wife come to a place where she didn't have peace or feel the Lord's call. We do things together as a team. So the team goes in the same direction. God doesn't speak to one person in the team to go one way and the other person in the other way. If that's how it is, guess what? One person or both people don't know what the Lord's will is. And you stop and you both seek the Lord until you both come to a consensus as to what God is calling the team to go towards. And so when her response was in effect, funny, you should say that. I'm like, what? And she just mentioned how the Lord had been speaking to her heart over the last couple months. And God had kind of challenged her and said, be willing to do whatever I call you to do and to follow me and take the family wherever I call you to go. I didn't know that. So when I say, what do you think about California? Funny, you should say that. And God had already spoken to her heart. But for me, I realized what a big decision that would be for her as she left her hometown, where she was born and raised, where her parents were, where all of her memories were growing up. She'd never lived anywhere else. And so sometimes folks will go like, oh, you know, they, they hear we're up here in, you know, in Arcata. And they're like, oh, wow, so you like the weather up there. I'm like, no, no. And so then they're like, why in the world would you have moved? It's like, because we came from sunny Arizona. Like, it's nice. It's, it's really nice. And it's like, well, oh, it must be the redwood trees. And it's like, they're nice. They're tall, really tall trees. And they block your view. Like you can't see. It's a bit claustrophobic. Again, coming from Arizona where you can go most places and you can see like those mountains are 70 miles away. I can see them. It's good. My eyes can unwind and look miles and miles and miles away. And so then people are really scratching their heads going, why are you there? And it's like, because Jesus is there. And because Jesus called us to follow him. See, if you make the decisions in your life based on economics, if we did, we would never have left Arizona. And for my wife, I'm just so thankful because I, I realize how much, how big of a decision that was for her to go, we're going to follow Jesus, let's do this together. And, you know, the idea, like, do we regret making that decision? No. Are there challenges? Oh, of course there's challenges. But do we, do we doubt, like, that Jesus was leading us? No. Do we feel fulfilled by what God has called us to do and how he's called us? Oh, we're so fulfilled. I'm telling you, you follow Jesus, even if it's to a place you don't expect, you will find this deep fulfillment in your soul. All right, so a great miracles has happened with Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 16, let's see how it's going. That evening, they brought to him, people in the town brought to Jesus, many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Man, that's amazing. Jesus is healing the people. And and you look at how Jesus is healing it. Sometimes we can look at Jesus doing healing, and it's like, well, of course, he's God. Like, of course he can heal people. I think it's important for us to look at this. He cast out spirits, demonic spirits, and he helped people oppressed by demons. How? With a word. So he is God and he's speaking a word. The word of God is being spoken. Our county has an issue. And it's not primarily a physical issue. It's not a governmental issue. Honestly, it's not, that's not primarily. I'm not saying there's no aspects to that. Of course, Yes but that's not the primary issue. And I don't want us to be fighting on the wrong battlefield, church. What do you mean? I don't want us to focus the primary efforts that we have, the primary focus of, you know, our limited resources. I don't want us to be focusing it on the physical because our county does not primarily have a physical issue. You know what our county has? A spiritual issue. If you're only fighting the battle on the physical battlefront, again, I'm saying only. If you only fight it there, just know There may be some temporary results, but you're not dealing with the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is a spiritual oppression and a stronghold in our community, which means you fight on the spiritual battlefield, not the physical battlefield. Okay, so how do I armor up and how do I go fight? Well, you have to put on the armor of God and then you have to know the sword. It's the only offensive weapon that we have. The only offensive weapon when you look at the armor of God is the sword. But yet how often can we with the word of God be like, oh yeah, it's a, whoa, I don't know where, I don't know where the passage is. I don't, I don't really know this thing. It would be like somebody who doesn't know how to use a sword going, I know this is really important, but they don't know how to use it. That's why we teach the word because Christians should know and should be growing continually in how well they can use God's word. Because without God's word, we can't fight this spiritual battle. Otherwise, it's like, well, I'm going to invest more of my finances in this program that's helping people. That's good. Please don't misunderstand. Be generous to organizations that are helping people in our community and doing that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, though, if that's all you're doing, you're missing the primary battle. The primary battle is spiritual in our community. So you're saying pray first, pray often and help physically any way you can. Exactly. That's exactly That's exactly it. I love how Jesus is healing people oppressed by demons, not by starting a program in Capernaum, but by using the word. So take that for what you will and let that work in how you minister to the mission field we have right in the county that we live. Okay, verse 17. This is to fulfill. Why did Jesus do all these things? Well, here's one reason. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Isaiah said, You're going to know the Messiah. How am I going to know the Messiah? I'm going to describe him before he shows up. So Isaiah the prophet wrote about the Messiah coming, and one of the things that he wrote about that Matthew was saying, Hey, by the way, you know he's the king. How do I know he's the king? You remember what Isaiah wrote hundreds of years ago? Isaiah wrote that this king will take our illnesses and he will bear our diseases. It's interesting because it doesn't just say he'll heal them. It says that he will take them from us and he'll put them on himself. That's different than just healing somebody. Like if I go to a doctor and they give me some medication and I get healed, I'm healed. It's not the thing I was afflicted with doesn't suddenly transfer to my doctor. You're going to know the Messiah because the Messiah will come and he will heal people and he will take their burdens and he will carry them. Matthew wants us to know that this is the king that was prophesied And you may be wondering, wait, where in Isaiah? Isaiah's got a lot of chapters in there. Great. On the screen, you'll see it. Isaiah 53. This is the section of scripture that Matthew was focusing on when he was talking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief as one of whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't think he was anything to look at. There was nothing special about his outward appearance. In fact, we were despised by him when we saw him. Verse four, and this is the focus of where Matthew was quoting, surely he has bore our grief and carried our sorrows. See, there's a transfer. He sees us and goes, You're burdened down. You're oppressed by that. Come here, let me grab it. What are you gonna do with it? I'm gonna carry it. Don't I got it now. I'm taking it. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So then when we saw him burdened, we thought, Ah, he's probably burdened because of his own issues. He was perfect. If there was sorrow on his face and if there was a burden that he was carrying, it was because it was my burden that he was carrying. It was your burden. He didn't have any when he came. He chose to pick up our pain. Why was he a man of sorrows? Because he said, I'll take your sorrow. I'll take it. Give it to me. I'll take it. Now, if we don't give it to him, he can't take it. And anybody that wanted to go, I, God, I can't. He goes, I can I'll take it. This was said hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. And Matthew's going, this is how you know he's the king. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. See, we get peace, he gets chastised. He gets the whip, we get freedom. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, somebody has to pay. And the sad thing is that at the end of some people's lives, they will go, I'm going to pay myself. And God with a heavy heart will allow them to pay for themselves. Eternity separated from God. The alternative, we accept that Jesus has already taken it on him. And for those folks, Christians, eternity with God. I love looking at the Old Testament and looking at these things and going, man, it connects with the New Testament. They're connected. They're not not separated. Matthew's referring to this. I would like to take you to a story in the Old Testament. And this one, let me set the stage here for you. Egypt, Israelites. They're, they're out of Egypt. The Red Sea has come back over the Egyptians. And the Israelites are going, yes, we're free. But now they're going towards the promised land. And they're in the wilderness a little bit here. They're kind of on their way. It gets hot during the day. And they're thirsty. So these people come to an oasis. They go to the water. They drink from the water. Blah, it's bitter. And they go, this place, let's call this place Mara. They love naming places quite literally. What does Mara mean? Bitter. What's that place? Bitter. Why? Because the water was bitter there. Oh, I remember it. And so then what do the people do? They can't drink the water because it's bitter. They start complaining. They're really good at complaining. (laughs) Aren't we all? They're really good at complaining. And they complain at Moses. And Moses goes to God and God says, Moses, see that log? See that piece of wood that's there? Pick up that piece of wood and throw it into the bitter water. And when the wood was thrown into the bitter water... The Bible tells us the water became sweet. Man, you look at like New Testament imagery in the Old Testament. I think about the cross of Jesus Christ thrown into the bitterness of my sinful life and how out of bitterness, Jesus and the cross of Jesus brought sweetness into my life that I don't deserve. You're way back in Exodus and you're looking at that. But here's what Jesus said uh, here's what here's what God says to the Israelites after the water was made sweet, after that wood was thrown into the bitter water and it was made sweet. This is what God tells the people. He's going to tell them about his character. Look at this. Exodus 15, 26. This verse is actually in your bulletin. It's kind of the focus verse in our uh, bulletin this morning, but it says this, God speaking to the people of Israel, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. I am the Lord, your healer. I want us to focus on that last part of this verse here. He's saying, follow after me. I am the Lord, your healer. What do those words actually mean? I think we have a a screen to show first here. And it'll tell you like that ending part of Exodus 15, 26. For I am the Lord, your healer. You break it down. It's Jehovah, for I am the Lord. Rapha, which is your healer. That's one of the names of God. Jehovah Rapha. Who's Jehovah Rapha? He's the God who heals. (laughs) We believe in a God who can heal in ways that no other person can ever heal. I'm so thankful to see this in Scripture. And the healing is, you know, body, soul, spirit. It's this complete healing. It's not like the surface healing or, oh, you've got a cut, we'll put a band-aid on it. It's no, you've got something deep within you that's gone horribly wrong. I will fix you from the inside out. Jehovah Rapha. I'm so thankful for healing that happens in our community in places that you wouldn't think would be very, very likely. You know, we as a church, we definitely support our local um, pregnancy care center and we um, we just love them. I mean, we, I just want you to know, like if you're ever wondering, like I wonder where they stand. We wholeheartedly support our pregnancy care center as they save lives and they help Mothers avoid regret and sorrow and pain in the future that they can't see when they have a moment and a decision that they feel is so overwhelming. But the enemy will never tell them of the pain and regret that they will feel down the road. As they see children that would have been the age of the child that they were carrying. The enemy never tells you that part. Maybe you've seen this van. We'll see it around here now that high school's going to start in session this week. Uh, every week or every few weeks here, the uh, pregnancy care center van, this is their ultrasound unit. It ends up uh, parking across the street there and permit from, you know, a um, allowed letter of being allowed to be used by the property owner over there. And there's no issues for them to be there. Even though from time to time, they get people that heckle them and bother them. And what are they doing? They're letting moms see that that is life within them. It's not just a bunch of cells. It's a human being. And we as Christians know this, that life, human life, is valuable to God in any stage. Older, younger, unborn, all of it is precious to God. Why? Because all of them, the Bible says, are made in the image of God. And so when you see the ultrasound van driving around town, and it goes in different locations, say a prayer, because they, God is using them to save lives. And some of these are kids that will never know how they even had the opportunity to be born. And it might have been one of the ladies that was in this van allowing the Lord to use them to save a life. You know, it, Annette, if you get to meet her, she's a wonderful lady. She, uh, she told me, she goes, you know, there's times where I just try I, try. I ask the Lord to give me strength and try to have ways to speak to these girls to just let them know, hey consider what you're going to do. And she goes, if you're going to be in this kind of a ministry, there are going to be times where a decision is made to end a life. And of course, they don't have any part of that, but the young lady will then leave. And Annette says, you know, she goes, there's times where I just kind of just whisper and just go to the baby. I'm sorry, I tried. If you see the van driving around, you say a prayer. They are on the front lines because there's a culture of death in our country. We kill more people unborn every day than 9-11. Every day. You think 3,000 people at the World Trade Center was a big deal? I do. I do. I know some of them. We do that every day in our country. We have a culture of death. They're on the front lines. You pray for them. You know, maybe you're driving behind a bus and you happen to see this ad. Right? In the Eureka buses and other buses, you'll see like the advertisement. And again, my questions, am I really pregnant? How far along am I? What are my options? They are trying to stand there at the last hope, right? Going, God, please use us to just speak truth. Church, we should be praying. You know what I, what I love about the organization too? I mean, there's, there's two different parts. There's a pregnancy care center and then there's the medical side. The pregnancy care center—they just, uh, you know, help with um, how to raise kids and prenatal vitamins and, you know, resources, you know, diapers, all that stuff. We as a church, we help and we support them in that. We faithfully support this ministry. And there's two halves: one's a pregnancy care center, the other is the medical side. The medical side is the ultrasounds and all of those things, right? I'm just so thankful um, for. Um, who they've associated themselves with. I think you understand in our community, it can be a bit hard to find good medical care, right? If you've been here, especially if you come from a larger population, you're just like, what do you mean? How long's the waiting list? Wait, what? I've got to go down to SFO? Like, wait, hold on, what? Where do I live? And if you've been around um, the medical field too, you do know how they there's like the naming of some facilities and things like that. They're usually named after famous physicians or things like that. And I'm just so thankful for, um, the pregnancy care center, um, because I hope you get to meet this doctor because he is, uh, um, he's well known. Um, he, uh, to say that he's in a class by himself, I think would be a bit of an understatement. Um, the diagnosis that he gives, cause you know, sometimes, I mean, we know it a doctor, they're not perfect, right? Doctors aren't perfect. This doctor, however, the diagnosis, he has an incredible record. Like his rate of diagnosis and knowing what the actual issue is, is 100%. He hasn't been wrong yet. I'm just like, what? And and I'm sure some of you are like, hold on a second. Like, i got to change who my doctor is right now so I can give me a referral to this doctor. The other thing with this doctor, um, this doctor has seen everything. He's totally seen everything. And this doctor, uh, I'm so... so thankful for the Pregnancy Care Center because this doctor, um, they've named themselves after this doctor. You know, you look at it and you... Can we go back to the, um, the first screen if we wouldn't mind for just a moment here? Remember we were in Exodus, right? The wood gets thrown into the bitter water, it becomes sweet. And God says, for I am the Lord, your healer, Jehovah Rapha. Well, I need you to know this. The Rapha there, that's the your healer, but that's not the root word. The root word to, J- to Rafa is this word here, Rafa. Because there is a doctor here in our community who has a perfect track record, who diagnoses and who can heal. He goes by Jehovah Rafa, or maybe, can we go back to that pregnancy van? Maybe every once and again, you may see the van and you'll go, J. Rafa Medical. Maybe you've seen it been like, huh, J. Rafa rofi Rafa, R- and you're just going, what an odd, that must be, must be a doctor that's like kind of like an ethnic kind of, thing. he is, he's Jewish, he's Jewish, he, he's pretty awesome, and he's been around for a long time. He's in our community, and he's willing to heal anyone that will come to him. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. I don't know what it is that, that, that you are ailing with, but I have to tell you this. There's a primary thing that we all ail with, and that's sin. Wait, are you saying then that this Jesus, this Jehovah Rapha, this God of the Old Testament, New Testament apparently, apparently it's you know he hasn't changed? That's right. Well, what about the, 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 the sickness that I have? My terminal condition? What about that thing? Can he heal that? Can he heal that? Yes. Will he heal that? Well, that question is determined on what would be the right thing to do, and that's a challenging statement for me to say. Because for some, they'll go the right question. The right thing to do is always to heal. Not always. Be careful, because you will run across people in. Hmm, if you're a Christian long enough, you'll run across people that will say, "If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be sick a single day in your life," because you're a Christian. So God should totally heal you and you should be the, the pitcher of health. There's a man named Kenneth Hagin. He's written a bunch of books over the years. I want to show you the books that he's written. Here's just a touch of the books. He's written, you know, 20 plus books. Here's one of them. Biblical Keys to Financial Prosperity. Okay. The middle one. How to keep your healing. How to keep your healing? Wait, is it... Do I grab onto it like that real tight? Okay. The Midas Touch. The Golden Touch. I want to give you a quote from Kenneth Hagan. Kenneth Hagan said this. It's in one of his books, too. It's in his book, um, Seven Things You Should Know About Divine Healing. All right. Well, this guy's talking about holding on to my healing and all that other stuff. Look at his own words from his own book. Direct quote. I am fully convinced I would die saying it is so. Ooh, careful what you say. That it is the plan of our Father God in His great love and in His great mercy that no believer should ever be sick that every believer should live his full lifespan down here on earth and that every believer should finally just fall asleep in Jesus. The problem is, Mr. Hagen is wrong because the Bible doesn't teach that. The idea here is that you'll never have a sick day in your life and in the picture of perfect health, you'll just be like, Jesus, here I come. I don't know. What world do you live in? Because the world that I live in, that's not what it looks like. And you may just say, Pastor, Pastor, man, you're getting a bit harsh here near the end of the message. No, no, hold on. Because I like dealing in fact. The problem with Mr. Hagan's statement is it's just not true. And here's the thing. In his own admission and in his own testimony, wouldn't you know it? Look at that quote there. He said, I am fully convinced and I would die saying it is so. Careful what you say. His own testimony, he was diagnosed with a heart problem and what he called an incurable blood disease. Hmm. He died on September 19th, 2003, 86 years old from cardiovascular disease. God has the last word. you are going to, from time to time, have the effects of being in a fallen world. And sometimes that pain that we have and the suffering that we have, we just go, Lord, please take this from me. And you may wonder, I'm suffering right now. Should I ask God to take my pain? I have to say, if you haven't asked him, yeah, you should ask him. Because you know what? He might go, I was just waiting for you to ask me. You just haven't gone to the doctor yet. So you go to the doctor, you go, God, please heal me. And if it's the right thing to do, he will do it. Jim, I have a problem when you say if it's the right thing to do. You know, there was a man named Paul that also had a problem with that, but then he got it. I want to tell, look at his own words, not my words. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. This is Paul writing. We'll start off with the word so right here. So to keep me from becoming proud, because God was using Paul in a great way, Paul said to keep me from becoming proud... I was given a thorn in the flesh. There was some physical ailment that Paul had. I don't know if Kenneth Hagin had ever read any of Paul's writings because Paul himself said he had physical ailment, and he called it a messenger from Satan to torment me. But it had another purpose, to keep me from becoming proud. And look at this. Did Paul just ask God to heal him or did he just go, ah, it's fine. I'm not going to ask. No, he did. Three different times, I begged the Lord, Jerefei, To take it away. And then God answered Paul. Verse 9. Each time he said to me, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Do you understand why sometimes it's not right to take away a suffering you're going through? Because God's power is working even greater when we realize how weak we truly are. Paul goes on. So now, look at this, his heart has changed now. The pain hasn't gone away, and there's no indication that the pain ever left Paul the rest of his days on earth. But Paul's heart changed, and that's the point. Paul, look at his heart change. Verse 9, so now I am glad, glad? Thorn in the flesh, glad? Yeah, I am glad to boast about my weakness so that in the power of Christ, so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness, in the insults, hardship, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. Look at this conclusion. Such a powerful statement. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You yeah. understand there's times God doesn't do a temporary healing here on this earth because God's strength is best shown through your life in your weakness. Some of us, if we were the absolute pitcher of health and everything was great, you know what we may have the temptation to do? You know what? Genetics. I just have some good genetics. I take care of myself, work out a little bit. And you know, it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of me. Don't be surprised in as you're uttering those words. It's a lot of, oh, oh, I just, what's wrong with your back? I was patting myself on the back and my back went out. Imagine that, right? And so don't be surprised in your life where if you find yourself getting a little proud about how awesome you are, God goes, child, I love you. This is best for you. It's not, keep in mind, it's not that he can't heal you, but it might be best that he doesn't. I know that's hard to say, but I told you I'm not going to lie to you. I'm telling you the truth. And I think, you know, in your heart of hearts that I'm telling you the truth. You may wish that it was different, but I'm telling you the truth. I give you this quote from a Norwegian theologian. His name's Ollie Hallisby. And he says this, I, I'd never seen this before, this study. Here it is. Look at this quote that he has. I think we might, I put it in Dropbox. Would you mind grabbing it? Yes. I love it. Second service. You guys get to hear stuff first service didn't get to hear. So here we go. This is like a, an extra quote that I thought was so awesome. We were just running out of time for service. Not like we're running out of time now. Here we go. All right. Here's a quote from this Norwegian theologian, Ole Halsby. Lord, if it be to your glory, you see what the focus is, heal suddenly. And I'm like, yeah, heal suddenly. Do it now. If it will glorify you more, heal gradually. If it will glorify you even more, may your servant remain sick a while. And if it will glorify your name still more, take him to yourself in heaven. I know you know in your heart of hearts that that's the truth. I know you know it. We have to live our lives with this reality that there are times where what brings the most glory is when God doesn't do a healing. And what brings more people to know who Jesus is is when one person suffers. You may go, that seems so unfair. Well, what about Jesus on the cross? He suffered and he was innocent. How many people have a relationship with God because of the suffering of an innocent man. And if you're his follower, why should you be surprised when God, from time to time calls for you and I to suffer so that others may know who Christ is? I'll show you this quote. It's a quote from a, a man named Nick, and he says this. He says, "I keep a pair of shoes in my closet because I believe in miracles." Well, I keep a couple pairs of shoes in my closet because I like to walk around not barefoot, right? So when you read that, you're just like, all right, uh, Nick Vujicic, okay, great. Well, that's wonderful, but I don't get the significance of what a pair of shoes has to do with anything. I want you to remember, sometimes God does not do a healing because he gets more glory when we are weak. The lights will dim, the video's two minutes long. I think it's worth the two minutes.
1: What is freedom? What is hope? Guys, I wanted you today to know this, that I thought I needed arms and legs. i tell you a sad story right now. My dad actually has cancer. He has stage 4 pancreatic cancer. His doctors told him that he has about 4 weeks to live. This was on the 1st of September just last year. In two weeks, my dad got his house in order and he bought the plots of land that he is going to be buried in. It's hard. It was hard for him. Did we cry? Yes. Do we still sometimes cry? Sure. Have we prayed for healing? Absolutely. Why? Because God does miracles. For real, I have a pair of shoes in my closet, just in case God gives me arms and legs. And I want you to know that everything I'm telling you is true. I look at my dad today, and he's still alive, he's not who he used to be physically, but you look him in his eyes, and you see that the windows of the soul are his eyes. He is solid as a rock. You know what? He doesn't know exactly what's going on in his body and the doctors don't know why he's still here. But he knows that we can pray for a miracle and if God heals him, well, we're going to thank God. If God doesn't choose to heal him of cancer, we're going to thank God because finally he goes home. You see, he knows that he's a citizen of heaven passing through. And in fact, if you look in your Bibles, every miracle that Jesus personally laid His hands on and healed the blind and the lepers, guess what? They all got buried in the end too, no? Why does that happen? Because we're not meant to stay here on earth forever. We are indeed citizens of heaven passing through. We were created to be eternal beings. And I want you to know today that
0: God loves you. As he finishes, he talks about how he didn't believe it for many years. He was bullied as a child. His siblings, born with arms and legs, he wasn't. Made fun of as he was growing up. Wanted to take his life multiple times as he was young. Until somebody told him about Jesus and the hope that comes in Christ. And Jesus, J. Raffae, healed him. Jehovah Rapha healed him. What do you mean, Jimmy? He doesn't look healed. If you would ask Nick, he would say he's more healed than he's ever been. And the idea is that you would look at a man with no arms and no legs and God has used him in his weakness to reach over 600,000 people who have made a decision for Jesus Christ. Would God have been more effective in using him if he was born with arms and legs? I don't think so. In our weakness, God's strength is on display. Because then we're out of the way and we see the power of God working. Church, you should pray for healing, but you should trust God that he knows what's best in your life. And if you're going, God, if there's not a healing, then please give me strength to carry on and to be a good example for you. Because here's the, here's the guarantee. Christian, here's the guarantee. You will be healed. This is what I love. When I pray for somebody for healing, here's what I know is going to happen. Jehovah Rapha, it's a real deal. Here's what I know it's going to happen. When I pray for somebody for healing, they'll either be healed or they'll be healed. Sometimes we're just like, God, heal them temporarily. Heal them temporarily. Heal them temporarily. And sometimes God's like, you're praying the wrong prayer. I'm going to heal them forever. I didn't share this first service. For my dad, a person who no relationship with the Lord, pharisaical, diabetic, a lot of health issues. I want you to know this. And as I shared this, when I told people, they'd be like, man, you're not a loving son. I never once prayed for his physical health. Never once. Because here's what I noticed. I noticed that when he would get better, the pride would well up. Ah, well, see, strong as an ox. I'm just like, dad, you're missing it. And so then God would humble him and he would miss it and then he'd get better, and then God would have to humble him. And I didn't pray for that he would ever be physically healed, ever. I said, God, please let him recognize his need for you. Lord, that his soul would be saved, that he would accept you. And you know, it's probably seven, eight, nine, I don't even know how many years, quite a few years now, I had the opportunity to fly to India, be by his bedside while he was in ICU, and say, Dad, do you want to accept Jesus as your Savior? And for him to And it was an honor for me to pray with my dad so that he would accept Christ. Did all the issues of our past and all that stuff get resolved there? No, we didn't have time to talk through any of it. In fact, he died three weeks later. But I know, you know what, God, you healed him. And for the first time in eternity, I'll be able to talk to my dad without my sin getting in the way or his sin getting in the way. We'll have the first father-son conversation that we never had here on this earth. You know why? Because there's a God who heals. He heals relationships, and He does it. Just keep in mind, He's not trying to do it in the short lifespan that we've got here on this earth. There's eternity for the believer. So I would just ask if you would just please bow your heads, close your eyes. We'll dim the lights here just a little bit. Worship team, worship team's not going to come up. I just think it's important for just just to make sure that this is said here. I don't think we can talk about God healing and not ask you if you have Him as your doctor. Is Jay Rafay your doctor? Have you, out of your own choice, gone in to see him? Have you allowed him to diagnose you and to tell you it's your sin that's separating you from God? Have you allowed him to not just heal you, but to take your burden and your sin and put it on himself? Have you let him do that? Have you humbled yourself to ask for help? If you haven't, dear person, I have to say, then you will be called on the last breath after you're done. You will be face to face with a judge and you will be paying for all of your sin yourself for all of eternity. Why would you waste the death of an innocent man who died for you? Why wouldn't you humble yourself and just say, Jesus, I accept what you've done for me already and I give you my burdens, and I give you my guilt, and I give you my shame, heal me. Why wouldn't you do that? If you're listening on the radio or listening on the internet, it applies just as well to you. So as we're here this morning, if you're here in the building, you have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, and you haven't asked Jesus to be your doctor and to heal you from the biggest thing that you suffer from, your sin, and you want to do that now, would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you. Is there anybody in here that would want? I see your hand, sir. Is there anyone else in here? Is there anyone else? I see your hand in the back there too. God bless you. I see your hand in the front. Thank you, Jesus. You can put your hands down. (sighs) Papa, you see hearts that are calling out for you. They are at the end of themselves. They are weak. They know it and they are crying out. And I thank you. You never turn away someone who calls out to you with a humble heart. I thank you that you're not turning them away today. In fact, (laughs) Jesus, you're not afraid to touch people. You're touching their lives. Pray this prayer for those of you that have raised your hands and you want Jesus to be your doctor and to heal you. Just pray this prayer. It's you talking to Jesus. Say it in your heart to Him. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I need you. I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. I'm sick with sin. I need a healing. Jesus, please heal me of everything. I believe you died on the cross for me and you took my sin I believe that one day I'm going to see you again face to face. Jesus, please help me to walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you face to face. Jesus, I love you. Father, we thank you so much for those here who made a decision for you. We pray that this, we know this is not the end of their journey with you. This is the beginning. And we pray that they would know your voice, so they would know how to follow you where you go, wherever you go. And we pray, God, that you would give them healing. Lord, we know that if you don't heal them of everything, every physical thing and all of that in this life, we know the promise. They are going to be healed. And we praise you today for that perfect healing that's coming soon. We love you in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. You know, sometimes you apologize for going long and other times you just go, hey, it's what God's hey. doing, right? So God bless you. Thank you for listening.